You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. So if you have your Bible, though, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. This is where we will be focusing our attention this morning as we look at God's Word together. So Acts chapter 12 starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way right up to the end of the chapter in verse 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its, of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, 
and the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear your word, as we've read it from Acts chapter 12, Father, we pray that you would give us understanding and that you would give us insight, Lord, to how you work your will through the prayers of your people. Father, as we have already thought and and prayed already this, this morning, we pray that as Redemption Church is forming and becoming established, that Lord, you would make us a people of prayer, a people that acknowledges our dependence and reliance upon you in all things. And Lord, that we would express that dependence and reliance by pervasive, consistent, and earnest prayer. Father, help us now at this hour. Lord, may the words of my mouth be honoring to your sight and and fitting for the building up of your church according to your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it's been a, a busy summer for those of us at Redemption Church. If you've been with us to the beginning, we had our, our first meeting together, Easter Sunday, April 1st of this year. And you think that's just four months ago. It really wasn't all that long ago, but yet it's been, <coughs> it's been a bit of a frantic pace to try to get everything together for this covenant time, for this public launch. And now with just a few weeks out, it's, it's here But as we've looked at these past few months, I mean, the Lord has done a lot in preparing us for this work. We've had to think through what what sort of confession of faith we're going to adopt and hold to as a church. We had to think through what kind of covenant do we want to have, a church covenant that that establishes the, the boundaries of our fellowship and the expectation and commitment that we have as members of one another. We had to think through a constitution. How is the church going to be organized and structured And those are just the founding documents. There's been lots of other stuff that have had to be done these last few months from volunteer recruitment, logo design, website construction, and more and more and more. There's been a lot of little details, but but yet by the Lord's grace, it's been exciting to see them all come together because we have all worked collectively hard to, to prepare for the launch of Redemption Church. But I think with that, we have to be careful. Because if we're not careful, our, our zeal and hard work could begin to mask an attitude of sinful self-sufficiency and self-dependence. We don't ever want to be able to say, look what we've done, but rather look at what God has done in the forming of this church And so it's easy for any Christian, particularly a new church plan, to begin to to drift into this attitude of self-reliance, self-dependence, self-sufficiency, thinking that we don't really need God to make this church be successful. And I think this sinful attitude is probably never something we would just say, but that sinful attitude is expressed most vividly through prayerlessness, the absence of prayer. If you ever doubt if you're prideful and self-reliant, just look at your prayer life. And the pitiful state of most of our prayer lives in this room indicate that we are far too reliant on ourselves and we are not dependent on God nearly as much as we think we are. Because if we were, we would be a people committed and devoted to prayer. 
So as we look at Acts chapter 12 this morning, we see an episode in the life of the early church, an important, a crisis that came upon the life of the early church. And we see that the church responds to this crisis with prayer. And we see how God answers that prayer, not only in the way they requested it, but in ways beyond in which they requested it. So here's the sermon in a summary sentence. If you want to jot this down, it should be on the screen. We will see that God protects and builds his church through the desperate prayers of his people. That God builds up, he protects his church, and he does so through the prayers, the desperate prayers of his people. The prayers are the means by which God protects and builds. So as we look at this text together, we're going to kind of walk through it piece by piece. And the first section we're going to look at today is is the need for prayer in verse 1 through 5. As we look at the early church, we see this crisis come about and stated clearly by Luke in verse 1 through 5. Now, if you know a little bit about the book of Acts, you'll remember that, that earlier on in the book, the church was established with Pentecost. By Pentecost, the Spirit came in power, and the church appeared to be growing and flourishing. And you'll remember that Stephen was a deacon of the church, and he was martyred after a powerful sermon rebuking the people for their rejection of the Messiah. He is stoned to death, beaten together by rocks by the people. And as we see Stephen as kind of the first martyr of the church, what happened after Stephen's martyrdom was kind of a wave of persecution that the church in Jerusalem began to to suffer. This, This early, young, infantile church began to have this wave after wave of increasing persecution and suffering. And with that enters Herod Agrippa. This is the Herod we see mentioned in the passage before us. So who was Herod Agrippa? What's what's a little bit of the historical background to this figure? Well, Herod Agrippa was was reared in Rome. He grew up there in the capital of the Roman Empire. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod Agrippa was well-connected with the the Roman establishment, the political powers that be. In fact, he, he played with the future emperors of Rome, Emperor Gaius and Emperor Claudius. He knew them. They were buddies. They were friends. They were old pals. They are golfing buddies, right? They, they didn't golf, but you know what I mean. They, they were partners. They were friends. And so because of how well-connected Herod Agrippa was, the emperors gave him the right to rule over the region of Judea as an extension of their authority. And so Herod Agrippa, in an attempt to please the Jews under his under his tutelage, he tried to win favor from them by by escalating the persecution of Christians. So here in in Acts chapter 12, we see that persecution goes from just being something kind of done by a few people to being something state-sponsored by Herod himself. And we see that Herod arrested James, the brother of John. This is not uh, James who would write the book of James, Peter's brother, but this is James, the brother of John. And he arrests him, and he kills him with a sword, persecutes him in front of all the people. Now, you might remember a little bit about James from the Gospels, and you'll remember that he and his brother John were constantly trying to to win favor with Christ, and they wanted to sit at the right hand of Christ. you remember this. And so they were constantly wanting to, to be in positions of authority and influence, and you'll remember that 
that Jesus tells them when uh, they were asking to sit at his right hand, he, he tells them that the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. And of course, they kind of arrogantly say, oh yeah, we're able to do that. And of course, we see Jesus's prophecy of James's life come true because he would drink of the same cup of death that Jesus would drink. And he would be baptized in blood in the same way Jesus was upon the cross in his sufferings. And it's interesting that all this is taking place around the season of Passover. Did you catch that note there? This is during the days of unleavened bread at the end of verse 3. Now, it was forbidden to execute somebody on Passover. It was a sacred week, a sacred time of year. You don't kill people on the Passover. (laughs) But it's interesting that all this is being conspired during the Passover. And it's ironic that here here is the Messiah, and here is the the, the apostles who testified to the Messiah, the, the true Passover lamb to which the holiday of Passover points to. And here we see the Jewish people taking delight in the execution of the Passover lamb's apostles. But yet James was executed and killed. I'm sure James's death discouraged the church. I mean, again, kind of put yourself in their position. The church is young. It's new. They're still trying to figure things out. They're still trying to to figure out what it means to follow Christ. And now there's this unrelenting wave of persecution, of suffering. And one of their key leaders, James, one of the apostles, was just executed by Herod himself, the ruler of the land. And now Peter is arrested. Peter's the leader of the apostles. And he is such a key figure in establishing the church. He is the rock upon which the church is built, right? And so now, now Peter is arrested and he's about to be executed. They're only holding off for a few days because of Passover. So he's sitting in a jail cell under heavy guard. And I'm sure the church is discouraged. They're unsure of what to do. It's a crisis moment for the church. Will they be able to come back from this after Peter's death? Will the church just disappear and die with this intensity of persecution? Will they be able to survive? Will the church be able to endure? They're stressed, they're anxious, they're worried. But look at what they do. Verse 5. They are in so many ways powerless. But look at what Luke says. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That little phrase makes all the difference. The church was helpless. There's nothing they could do. They couldn't bust Peter out. They, they couldn't do anything. But what they could do, and what they should do, is pray. And as we will see throughout this passage, that prayer, that earnest prayer, that earnest supplication of the church makes all the difference. You see, as we think about our own prayer lives, one of the things that ought to spur us to prayer is the recognition of our own need. That you and I have great need before God. We are sinners. We are wretched. We need God's grace and forgiveness. We need his provision. There is so much of God that we need. And it's often when we press into that need that we become aware of that need. And that spurs us to prayer. But crisis moments like the ones in Acts 12 come into our lives from time to time. 
And it becomes really clear that when there's a situation in your life that's kind of outside of your control, outside of anything you can do, God often uses those situations to spur his people to deeper and more serious and more earnest prayer. But let me encourage you not to wait until those crisis situations to begin to earnestly pray. Because we always have need. Sure, we have need in those crisis moments, but, but recognizing our constant need before God is a sure way to spur you to prayer. That if you really recognize and realize that you can't live the Christian life on your own, that you can't be holy enough, you can't be good enough, you can't be righteous enough, then that will spur you to fling yourself before the throne of God day after day, hour by hour, expressing your need for his grace, your need for his spirit, your need for his will to be done in your life. We are a needy people. But when those crisis situations come, we should seize them as an opportunity to spur our prayer life even deeper. We should go before the Lord with earnestness. I love that word, right? Earnest prayer. You're not just praying quickly to kind of move on and, and get done with it. But rather we see at this crisis moment of Peter's arrest and his pending execution, the church is earnestly praying. And as we will see, they are staying up late into the night at Mary's house, praying and praying and praying that God would save and rescue and deliver Peter from his execution. Because as we pray, we can pray with confidence. We can pray knowing that God is a God who keeps his promises to his people. And so what sort of promises do we have for the church? Well, we have the promise that God will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as the church is praying here in Acts 12, I'm sure they're praying that very truth. Jesus, you said you'll protect your church. You said you will build us up. You said you will cause us to persevere. You say the gates of hell will not prevail against us. But Father, we need you now. The enemy is rising up. They're coming for us. Our leaders are being arrested and executed. Lord, we need you to be faithful to your promises. And those types of prayers in which we call upon the promises of God are prayers that God delights to answer and will answer. And so that's what the church prays. And then as we see, going from verse 5 through verse 6, God immediately answers their prayers. And that leads us to the second point in the passage, the deliverance of prayer, the deliverance of prayer. Here we see God answer prayer. And we see perhaps, I think, the most miraculous prison escape in human history. I, I, people tend to be fascinated with prison escapes, aren't they? It's just something interesting we like to figure out and like to watch and observe. One of my all-time favorite movies, in fact, I, I think it's probably safe to say it's probably my favorite movie, is The Shawshank Redemption. Have you ever seen that movie before? Um, it's been out for a while, so I'm about to spoil it for you. So if you, if you want to plug your ears for the next few moments, you're welcome to if you haven't seen it. But the movie's about a guy named Andy who gets put in prison unfairly, without cause, and he's in prison, and we see that over his time in prison, he prepares this long and extravagant prison escape. And we don't see exactly how he does it until the very end of the movie, and we see that, that Andy spent years digging a tunnel in his room, covering it with a poster, and that as he digs that tunnel through his room, he opens up a sewage pipe with a rock, and then he crawls through miles of sewage and a drainage pipe and eventually gets his freedom in that great triumphant scene where he gets out in the rain and he is free at last. He's redeemed, so to speak. 
So that's a fascinating prison escape. I mean, it took Andy years of planning to make that happen, years of work and a little bit of luck for him to be able to make that escape. Now, as we think about the Shawshank Redemption, as we think about Peter's escape, they couldn't be further opposite, could they? Peter had no planning. There was no plan. There was no preparation. There was no luck. There was no years of work. God just busted Peter out. That's what happened. Peter didn't even realize what's happening <laughs> as the angel comes. So we see the angel goes, shows up. Peter thinks he's dreaming. He thinks he's still asleep. And of course, Peter is under heavy guard. He's got two guards chained right next to him, two guards at the doorway. And there's four uh, garrisons of guards that shuffle through to make sure that no one fell asleep. And so we see that Peter's under heavy guard. And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up, tells Peter to get up, get dressed. We're getting out of here. And they literally walk out of the prison. The angel somehow supernaturally kept the guards asleep. The gates open up. Peter's chains fall off. They just walk out of prison. And so as Peter gets out, he still thinks he's dreaming there for a while. And it's not until the angel left him and he's standing out in the street that he realizes, hey, I'm not dreaming. I'm, I'm really, I'm free. The Lord has delivered me from my prison. And so Peter goes to Mary's house. All right, go check in on the church. I'm out now. And so he goes to Mary's house, and Mary was the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So this is John Mark. This is the author of the Gospel of Mark, a close companion <coughs> of Peter throughout his ministry. And so Peter goes, and he shows up to their house that night, let alone knowing that the church is there praying for his deliverance, and the church is praying, and God had already answered their prayers. Peter's on the doorstep. So Peter goes and, and kind of knocks on the door. And again, the church is being secretive because they're under persecution. So they're not just going to kind of come in. And, and so they send Rhoda out, who is a servant girl, to come and check and see who was at the door in the middle of the night like this. And of course, Rhoda hears Peter's voice, is so excited that she doesn't even open the door for him. And she goes and runs back in and tells the church, guess what? We're praying, but Peter's right outside. And they're thinking, oh, Rhoda, you're crazy. All right, it's late at night. You're getting delirious. All right, you've had too much coffee. All right, you need to calm down a little bit. And so we see that eventually they tell, Rhoda goes back and says, no, he really is here. And so Peter, I'm sure getting a little perturbed, standing at the door as a fugitive in the middle of the streets in the middle of the night, is eventually let in. And then Peter gathers the church around him and tells them to be silent. And he tells the story of how God had answered the prayers of the church, how the angel delivered him and rescued him. And Peter makes it clear who gets the credit for this in verse 17, right? But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, how the Lord had brought him out. God gets all the praise for this. This was not Peter's plan. This is not the church's plan. All the church did was pray. And God, by his grace, acted in response to the prayers of his people. You see, it's one of the, the big questions that a lot of people have when we think about prayer is the tension between prayer and God's sovereignty. You know, would God have busted Peter out of prison had the church not prayed? Let's say they didn't give earnest prayer. Would God still have delivered Peter? Or, or was God's deliverance of Peter contingent upon the earnest prayers of the church? This is a perplexing question, but it really ought not to cause us much concern. Because the pattern we see throughout the Bible 
is that God works his will through the prayers of his people. God does his sovereign will through the prayers of his people. In other words, when the church gathers and when the church prays, it makes a real and lasting difference in this world. That the Lord answers and responds to the prayers of his people. Even though we should hold to a robust and I think biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things, this should not cause us to pray less. If anything, it should cause us to pray more. Because we believe that God alone is powerful, that God alone is sovereign enough to accomplish his will and to answer the prayers of his people. Luke makes the connection really explicit as you follow the narrative of chapter 12. He makes it clear that, that it's the, the response of the people's prayers that God delivers Peter. When he makes that statement in chapter, uh, verse 5, that earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church, immediately goes into the rescue. That in response to the people praying earnestly, God delivers and protects Peter and rescues him. You see, we as a congregation should be intentional in our prayer together. We should be intentional in praying with one another. And we should expect at times for God to give surprising results in ways that are immediate, in ways that we could not even imagine. I'm sure the, the church did not expect when they were praying that night for Peter to show up on their doorstep. But yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what God did. So, so church, we must gather together regularly. And may a key component of our life together as a congregation be praying with one another. And when you get together with other people from the church, whether it's for lunch or for coffee or, or to do a Bible study together or, or whatever, make prayer a key part of our life together as a congregation. Be intentional about it and be bold in your prayers for the congregation and for God's work. Pray that God would seek and to save the lost. Pray that God would build up his church in holiness. Pray that, that God would protect us from the schemes of the devil that would lead us into quarreling and temptation and division and hostility. Pray that God would protect and build his church. And we must pray for this regularly, often, all the time in our lives together. And we can't let the doctrine of God's sovereignty give us an excuse for our prayerlessness. God wants us to pray. He demands that we pray, and God responds to the prayer of his people. So let me urge you to do just that, that in your own way, figure out how to pray for the church and for the work of God in your life. This is one of the reasons why we gather on Sunday evenings as Redemption Church. And of course, we do this every Sunday night at 5 o'clock. You're welcome to come back tonight. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be praying together. And that's such an important part because usually in our busy church calendars, the first thing to go is prayer. All right, we've got Bible studies to do, got a discipleship to do. But usually the first thing when a church needs to cut something or when you need to cut something out of your church calendar, it tends to be the prayer, the corporate time of prayer for the church. And that's one of the reasons why we have that Sunday night service is one, to, to do a little more teaching and updates, and, but, but also to set aside a particular time to pray for kingdom issues, gospel issues in our city, that the gospel would advance. 
So come on Sunday nights and be a part of those meetings together where the church prays together because we believe, right, that God acts in response to the prayers of his people. And that leads us to consider the third thing this morning, the fruitfulness of prayer in verse 18 through 24, the fruitfulness of prayer. So God not only answered the prayers of his people to deliver Peter, but God also answered the prayers and exceeded the expectations of the people by dealing with Herod himself. As we see in verse 18, after Peter's liberation, he departs and goes to another place. The church is commanded to to go tell James, not the James that just died. This is uh, James, uh, who would be the leader in the church, um, the brother of Jesus. And so they tell the apostles, and of course, Peter got out of town so he wouldn't be recaptured again. And we see in verse 18 through 19 that Herod, as typical for a guard who lost his prisoner, all the guards were executed in a response. And that just goes to show the supernatural work of the angel in rescuing Peter. That if you knew your life was on the line, as typical custom in those days, to watch a prisoner, you would be sure not to fall asleep, let alone all four of you, right? So this is just signifying the supernatural deliverance of Peter's rescue. But then we get this interesting episode in verse 20 through 23. And, and what's going on here is that Tyre and Sidon were, were wanting to build, restore a relationship of peace with Herod. And so they convince Herod's closest attendant, Blastus, to convince Herod to make peace with them, to restore their, their, their fellowship together. And in an effort to make peace, Herod puts on these royal robes, uh, the historian Josephus said that these robes that Herod wore were like, were like sparkling silver that shine like the sun when you're out in daylight. Create the illusion of divinity, which Herod wanted for himself. And so Herod's speech and his presence on the platform almost seemed godlike to the people who were gathered. And we see they began to chant a blasphemous chant, the voice of God and not of a man. These people began to give praise to to Herod as some sort of God. And we see just what God thinks of those who make themselves out to be false gods. Herod soaked up the divine praise for himself, and immediately the Lord struck him down because he failed to give praise to God. It's interesting to see the contrast between Peter and Herod in the book of Acts. I mean, just a few chapters before, back in chapter 10, verse 26, we see Peter himself reject the worship of another guy. We see him speaking with Cornelius, and Cornelius falls before the feet of Peter to worship him, and Peter quickly corrects him. And he says, stand up, I too am just a man. You see, when Peter received worship, he rejects it and immediately puts a stop to it. When Herod received worship, he basked in it, he enjoyed it. He delighted it. He encouraged it. You see, Herod's death reminds us of a very important biblical principle, that God humbles the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, God will not be mocked. He will not share his praise with any other. That The great and powerful Herod of Agrippa was struck down by God and consumed by worms. You see, God not only answers the requests of his people, He often exceeds their requests. He goes above and beyond in his response to his people's prayers. We see that the church 
prayed for Peter's deliverance. But the big problem the church was facing was Herod. Herod, who solicited state-sponsored persecution. And this persecution would continue even after Peter had gotten out of jail. It was still coming. And so God, in efforts to protect his church, deals with the problem, deals with Herod, and kills him and executes him because of his idolatry. And we see the result of this in verse 24. That after Herod died and was eaten by worms and breathed his last, look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God, by his grace, encouraged and helped the church to continue to bear more and more fruit. We see all throughout the book of Acts, God's effort to preserve and protect and to build his church as the gospel goes to the very ends of the earth. And we see here another episode in which God intervenes to protect his people and to build his church. And we can have that confidence that as we pray for God to protect and to build his church, that God will do it. He will cause his church to bear fruit, to multiply, to advance. Those are prayers that God loves to answer. So may we devote ourselves to this type of prayer, to earnest prayer. Take a look at your own prayer life. That can be a painful thing to do because there's sadly probably not much of it. And when we look at our lives carefully, we see so often that we are going about our business, going about our routines, checking off our lists with little thought or awareness of our reliance upon God. May we be a church that depends upon the Lord in all things. And may that dependence upon God be expressed through earnest prayer, just like we see here in Acts chapter 12. Particularly now, as we're planting this new church, there's a lot of exciting things happening. There's a lot of fruit that's being born, and that that excitement, that zeal, that passion should not cause our prayer life to wane, but rather it should deepen. There will be crisis moments that come in the life of Redemption Church. It will come, we know it will, and those moments we should be devoted to earnest prayer. But I want to suggest that we should always be devoted to earnest prayer not just when things are bad, not just when there's a problem, but even when the Lord is causing the church to be flourish and grow and thrive as he is now, that should cause us just the same amount of intensity of prayer as when there's a crisis involved. We want to be a people committed and devoted to pray. So let me encourage you in your own life, figure out ways that you can be more devoted to prayer, not just in every aspect of your life, but praying for the church. So typically when we go through our our time of prayer, we usually just kind of have our our laundry list of items that we need, like a problem in your life or something that's that's going on in in your life. And our prayers tend to be kind of self-centered, even in the way we communicate them. Not that we shouldn't pray for those things, but in our prayers, we must also include bigger gospel issues, much bigger than you. We should pray for our city. We should pray that the Lord would bring revival and renewal. We should pray that the gospel would advance. We should pray that the church would be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. We should pray that the gospel would go forth in power and be fruitful. The church would increase and multiply. Those are the types of prayers that we should pray every day. So as I was thinking through this text and, and kind of how, how can we as a church be obedient to this text, I was praying and began to think that we need to be more intentional about this together, particularly these next three weeks. 
Because believe it or not, our covenant night's coming up and our public launch is just a few weeks away, three weeks away. So in order to help us pray together, I'm, I'm calling for us as a congregation to set aside the next three Wednesdays for fasting and prayer. So the next three Wednesdays, starting this Wednesday, so beginning this Wednesday, August 1st, if you are able, physically able, and if you're willing, let us fast from food in order to devote ourselves to prayer. And in addition, for all who can make it, we will have a, a real informal time on Wednesday night here at CCS at 6.30 just to pray. It's going to be no agenda other than just getting together and pray. So that will be starting this Wednesday night. So if you're able to do that with us, we would love to have you. If you can't make it, it's okay. Pray from home. But we are just going to pray together that God would bless Redemption Church. And we're going to do that for the next three Wednesday nights. So we'll do it on August 1st, August 8th, and August 15th. And as we do that, we want to be intentional in communicating our helplessness, our dependence upon the Lord and we want to beg him for his power to come upon us as we launch our public ministry to our community in just a few short weeks. Because after all, we've done a lot of work. We've put a lot of sweat and tears into getting Redemption Church ready. But no matter how hard we work, no matter how skilled our planning, unless the Lord gives us his growth, all of it is for naught. So we want to be dependent upon him. So help me, join me with that as a congregation as we take Wednesdays, these next three weeks, and really devote them to prayer privately and corporately together. But let me pray for us now. Father, we are so very grateful for your grace and mercy and building up your church and protecting your church. And Father, we repent of prayerlessness in our lives, of being so self-reliant on our own efforts to do your will. Father, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, we pray that even this morning, you would remind us of that. Father, we thank you that you answer the prayers of your people. Or that when your people call upon you, you hear them, you respond. And so, Father, I pray that as Redemption Church, that we would be intentional in praying together these next several weeks. And every week after, but particularly these next few weeks, as we pray for your blessing upon this new work, this new church that's being formed for your glory. Father, help us to keep us humble and dependent and reliant and help us to, to pray in confidence upon your promises, knowing that you will build up and you will protect your church. Father, we do pray, Lord, that even in our failure, even in our disappointments, even in our prayerlessness, Lord, we are so thankful for your grace and mercy that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that it is only by his blood that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have life everlasting, or that we have grace for each day. So, Father, even though we might all feel convicted by our prayerlessness in our own lives, Lord, may we not wallow in guilt, but, Lord, may you lift us up by your grace and stir us further towards obedience. Father, I do pray for those in this room who might not know Christ at all, Lord, I pray, Father, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them and, Lord, that they would turn from their sins and trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Father, we know that the one prayer you will always answer is the prayer of a helpless sinner who comes before you in faith asking for forgiveness of sin. Lord, you are faithful to answer that prayer. As your word says, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And so, Father, I pray for anyone in sin this morning, that they would be faithful to confess, and, Lord, that you would be faithful to deliver and to answer and to forgive and restore. But, Father, we pray that as we sing together, as we finish up our time of worship this morning, that you would make us a people of prayer for your glory. And, Lord, that you would build up and protect your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.